And, O oh Lord, as we come now to your word, we come as the Israelites in the wilderness who needed manna, knowing that our only hope is that you would nourish us, that you would feed us, that you would provide for us. And so we ask that as we turn to your word, that we would hear the voice of our good shepherd calling to us, and that we would eat from his hand and be nourished from his hand, and that in doing so, we would have streams of living water flowing out of us. We pray, Lord, for conviction. We pray for understanding. We know that without your Holy Spirit giving us understanding, we would just be lost in the darkness. And so we pray for understanding, and we pray, Lord, that you would give us the new heart that desires to obey your commands. All for the glory of Christ. In his name we pray. Amen. Well, if you have your Bibles, please turn to the book of Matthew, chapter 5. We're going to be continuing in our study of the Sermon on the Mount today. Uh, Of course, the first Sunday of every month, we're in the New Testament, and every other Sunday, we're in the Old Testament. Uh, We believe that all Scripture is breathed out by God, and that it is profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, and training in righteousness. That includes both the Old Testament and the New Testament. Uh, But today, we are in the New Testament. We're in Matthew chapter 5. We're going to be looking at verse 6 as we continue in our study of the Sermon on the Mount, which, of course, uh, is the, the longest sermon by Jesus that we have recorded for us. Uh, so we'll be continuing in our study of the Beatitudes, which is the, the opening section of the Sermon on the Mount. Um, John Calvin's greatest academic or, or theological accomplishment was probably writing a two-volume set of books that are titled Institutes of the Christian Religion. Uh, It's something that every Christian should read at some point in their life. It's a a great work, a very rich work, and it's uh, an immensely influential work. But the set, uh, the two volumes, begin with these words. These are the opening words of this two-volume set. He writes, Our wisdom, insofar as it ought to be deemed true and solid wisdom, consists almost entirely of two parts, the knowledge of God and of ourselves, end quote. In other words, in order for us to have true wisdom, true knowledge of pretty much anything, to have wisdom about anything, we have two underlying spiritual needs. Uh, We must have knowledge of God, and we must have uh, knowledge, uh, wisdom relating to ourselves as well. Here's my question for you. Which one's more important, knowing God or knowing ourselves? And I'd say, uh, well, they're, they're both crucially important. And so in a way, it's kind of like asking, uh, which leg uh, do you prefer? You know, uh, which is more important? Or which one of your ears is more important? Or which one of your eyes is more important? You get the point. They're both important. Knowing God is, of course, vitally important, but so is knowing ourselves uh, because if we don't know ourselves, but we know God, what, what, is it, what good does it do for us? And Calvin acknowledged how difficult and, and how important it is to have both of the, these things. He said this, It is not easy to determine which of the two precedes and gives birth to the other. End quote. In other words, uh, do we first need to have the chicken or do we first need to have the egg? Uh, do we first need to have knowledge of God or do we first need to have knowledge of ourselves? Because we need both. But he goes on to say this in the very same paragraph of the opening of the book. He writes this, he says, quote, Indeed, we cannot aspire to Him, to God, in earnest, until we have begun to be displeased with ourselves. End quote. And so the question is, what could possibly cause us to become displeased with ourselves? Because that is totally antithetical to the natural man's disposition, his nature. Now, I want you to hold on to that thought. Because as we continue our study in the Sermon on the Mount today, we're going to see that Jesus also taught this to be true. That we must 
be displeased with ourselves. We cannot aspire to Him in earnest until we have begun to be displeased with ourselves. Now, as we've noted, we have two underlying basic spiritual needs, to know and understand ourselves and to know and understand God. At the same time, I would say, and I think Calvin agreed, uh, that it's not possible to truly know and understand ourselves until we know something about God. And he finally concedes that point, that it is more important that we, that we understand God first. Uh, Calvin would eventually settle on the conclusion uh, that it's maybe slightly more important, but again, both are important. Both are vitally important. If we have even the most basic understanding of the fact that God is holy. That is, that He is entirely different from us. That He is righteous in all of His ways. Of course, but, but in this sense, but that He is separate, distinct, entirely different from us. That helps us to see ourselves rightly. When we understand that He is supremely righteous, And we're actually the opposite of that. The moment we understand that much, the moment we understand that God is perfectly righteous, we're actually driven to look at ourselves inwardly. And this is when we can begin to gain true understanding and wisdom about ourselves. We're forced to acknowledge our differences with God when we look within ourselves, starting with our utter sinfulness. If we have a true glimpse of ourselves, just the slightest true glimpse of ourselves, if we understand this much about God, we start to see that we are actually ruled by sin. That that it governs us, that it masters us, that it clouds our thinking, it clouds our judgment, it affects our ambitions, and indeed, it affects everything about us. The Sermon on the Mount began this way, by forcing us to look within ourselves. Jesus said in verse 3, Matthew chapter 5, verse 3, He said, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. What does that verse do? It makes you look inside yourself to see, am I poor in spirit? As we considered what that meant, we saw that it was entirely the opposite of the unregenerate natural man. Because it, what it means, essentially, is that we be humble when our nature is to be proud, to be arrogant, to be independent and autonomous, to be rebellious. And Jesus followed that up by saying in verse 4, Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Again, that forces us to look within ourselves. Do, do I mourn the way that he's saying here? We saw that this referred to a mourning over one's sin, uh, what we call true repentance. And again, this is the opposite of the natural man's nature. The unregenerate don't mourn over sin. What do the unregenerate do about sin? They celebrate it. They embrace it. They advertise it. And they do the same for others as well who are sinning all around them. What the natural man mourns over is the fact that God is righteous. He hates that. And he wants nothing to do with it. Jesus continued forcing us to look inward as He continued in verse 5 saying, Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. And we saw that this refers to a willingness to set aside what is rightfully ours, uh, to deny our rights, to deny our privileges, and to trust ourselves in God's hands. You'll remember that Jesus said, If anyone desires to follow Me, he must deny himself. That's where it starts. And that's what Jesus was talking about there. And once again, this is something that is absolutely impossible for the unregenerate person. It's actually the exact opposite of the natural man's disposition to set aside his rights, to set aside his privileges, to trust God in every situation rather than taking every situation into our own hands. It's exactly the opposite of man's nature to do these things. And yet, Jesus himself was the the ultimate example of this. Rather than demonstrating the fullness of his power and of his glory when he took on flesh he veiled his glory and power as he took on flesh taking the form of a bond servant the lowest of the low 
taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Of course, that's what we read about in Philippians chapter 2, verses 7 and 8. But this, again, is the exact opposite of what the unregenerate man's nature allows him to do. So all of this has been for the sake of causing us to look within. And all of this looking within has served a very important, a very specific purpose. And your answer, your thinking might be, well, what purpose could that be? To, to cause us to be filled with a sense of despair? Yes, actually, uh, to, to an extent, that's, that's part of it. it that's, that's why men suppress the truth in unrighteousness, because that's what it does. When That's, that's the effect that the natural man has, uh, or the, the response that the natural man has when he considers God's righteousness versus his unrighteousness. But that's only half the answer. So part of it is to give us a sense of, of hopelessness, of, of despair. We should despair when we look within. And that's not only true of the natural man, by the way. That's true of Christians as well. And that's often the problem with any philosophy or ideology that causes us to focus too much on ourselves and on our actions, our behavior, looking for fruit, good fruit in our lives. So yes, Jesus wanted us to look within first for the point, for the purpose of reaching a point of despair and hopelessness, but don't stop there. If you stop there, you're just going to suppress the truth and unrighteousness. The second reason he did so was so that we would be driven to look outside of ourselves for relief from our sense of despair. When we realize that God is righteous and we look inwardly and realize that we are not righteous, we can't stop there. We can't stop there because God requires righteousness from us. And so we must find it outside of ourselves. Martin Luther argued that the natural man's problem is that by nature we are, in the Latin, incurvatus in se. In the Latin, that means inwardly focused. And that's the reason, uh, and the reason that that's a, that's a problem is because looking inwardly. Uh, can solve absolutely nothing for us if we just stop there. Uh, this is the Achilles heel, by the way, of secular counseling, secular uh, therapy, by the way. Their answers to all of life's problems reflect this natural disposition that we have to be in curvatus in se, uh, inwardly focused. Their, their answer for life's problems would be things like, well, you just need to find your true self within yourself, or you need to find it within yourself to forgive yourself, or you need to learn to love yourself self love is the answer to which we say no it's not it's the problem that's the problem the person who has true wisdom true understanding of self realizes that self-love is actually what lies at the root not only of his own problems but of all the problems that we see around the world we must be driven to look outside of ourselves and that's exactly what Jesus does with the beatitude that we come to today that follows these first three. The fourth beatitude is found in Matthew chapter 5, verse 6. It says this, Jesus says, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Now this is a verse that lifts and, and that redirects our gaze because we've already seen that we have no righteousness to speak of. As we've looked inwardly, all we've seen is emptiness. All we've seen is sinfulness. We've seen rebellion, pride, stubbornness. All the things that were totally antithetical to all the things that Jesus has already said are required to be a part of His kingdom. This beatitude, so, uh, therefore, marks a, a shift in direction in that it forces us to stop looking within for a sense of hope as it relates to God's kingdom because it can't be found within. There is no hope within us. And so the previous beatitudes have really been, you might say, negative. But this one is more positive. Uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones says this of this beatitude. He says, quote, 
It is very doctrinal. It emphasizes one of the most fundamental doctrines of the gospel, namely that our salvation is entirely of grace or by grace, that it is entirely the free gift of God, end quote. And that's that's the very same point that I want to drive home with you today as we consider this verse, this beatitude. Now, unlike the previous beatitudes, which weren't exactly the easiest to understand on the surface, this verse is actually extremely easy to understand. It's very forthright, very clear. You could just look up all the words, you know, see what they mean in a dictionary, and have a very basic understanding of this verse very easily. But we should remember that there are also implications here, and there are applications here, and that's primarily what I hope to lay out before you here today. But it will begin by defining some of our terms. Let's start with the word blessed. Uh, Let me begin by asking you this. Have you seen people who are not saved um, write on an Instagram post or on a social media post, hashtag blessed or something like that? Have you seen them use the word blessed? Because they actually consider it kind of synonymous with happy or content or satisfied. I know that I have seen these things. So let's make sure we have a biblical understanding of this word because the unregenerate, the the, the worldly definition of it is almost right. It is a synonym for happy, uh, but we'd say that being blessed is not only being happy, but that it's being happy about something that is good to be happy about. So if we feel blessed about sinning, that's not a blessing in biblical terminology. That's a worldly understanding of being blessed. But what we mean by being blessed is we have done the right thing and therefore we are uh, happy or content with having done that. Uh, Peter uses the same Greek word in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 14, where he writes, but even if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness, you are blessed. Now we normally, and the world especially, doesn't connect suffering with a sense of blessing or happiness, but that's how contrarian our thinking as Christians should be. That's how unlike the world's understanding ours should be. This is why Paul would say that he considered all of his prestige that he had at one point, all the accomplishments, all the privileges that he had as a teacher of the law, to be absolutely rubbish, garbage, junk, in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord for whom I have suffered the loss of all things. Philippians 3.8 So we understand that being blessed doesn't mean happy in a worldly sense. It means happy in a godly sense, in a biblical sense. But to be blessed is to be happy. In fact, some translations Uh, render the word here in our verse, happy. And happiness is the desire of every person, isn't it? Doesn't everybody want to be happy? Of course they do. It's so important to us. We have it in our nation's Declaration of Independence. We we hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their Creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Yeah, that's how important it is to us. Everybody wants to be happy. We have countless songs uh, that have the word happy in them or that are about being happy. Uh, Don't worry, be happy was one anthem. Uh, happy birthday. We, we, everybody knows that song. More people know that song than probably any other song in the world, right? Uh, Farrell Williams' song, Happy, has been in, I, I mean, who knows how many uh, TV shows, movies, commercials, and so on. People love and desire happiness. And they are driven by happiness, by a a desire for happiness. They long for happiness. This is why people do everything that they do. It's because they think that whatever it is they are doing, there will be a sense of happiness to be gained from doing whatever it is they're doing. 
Uh, commercials are all written to convince you that you will be happy if you will just do business with them, if you will buy their product. Uh, you see these ridiculous commercials for pharmaceutical uh, uh, companies where they're making, you know, they, they've got these commercials where people are just laughing and running around and having a jolly old time while they're going through this terrible list of possible side effects that makes you wonder why in the world would anyone ever want to take this pharmaceutical supplement or whatever it is and the answer that they want you to come to is because it will make you happy that's why all the people are laughing and running around and all jolly on those commercials because they want to give you the idea that you will be too or you'll be comfortable if you take this or that pill and that that will make you happy but the truth about the matter is that happiness uh, the, the, the happiness that the human soul longs for can't be found within ourselves. And so while humanity searches and longs and strives for this happiness that it's longing for, humanity always ultimately comes up empty. As you consider the world in all of its misery right now, this is as obvious as 2 plus 2 equals 4. Consider how many people are self-medicating with drugs and alcohol in our time. And, and today's drugs are, are not like your, your grandfather's drugs. They're not like drugs were back in the 60s or 70s or, or 80s. No, the drugs that the kids are playing around with today are far more dangerous and far more deadly than the drugs that people experimented with even 20 or 30 years ago. L look at the rate of depression out there. It is absolutely soaring. It doesn't matter if you're poor or if you're rich. We see both uh, you know, poor people in despair and we see wealthy people in despair. And is that because they haven't sought happiness? No, not at all. They have sought happiness. It's because they have sought happiness and came up empty that they feel this despair. And this verse, this verse that we're looking at today, tells us why they did, why they did come up empty, and why they always will come up empty. Blessed, that is, happy, are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Do you see the proper order of things? Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Let me say it another way. If you hunger and thirst for righteousness, you will be rightfully happy. Do you see the difference between what humanity is doing and what Jesus is saying is necessary? Humanity is pursuing happiness and finding emptiness. But Jesus is essentially saying if you desire righteousness, you will find happiness. And what would cause us to hunger and to thirst for righteousness? The answer is a deep glimpse within ourselves. Realizing that we need righteousness and yet we have none to speak of within ourselves. So see, the world has it all wrong. The world has it all backwards. They, they thirst and they hunger for happiness. And when you make happiness the object of your pursuit, of your desire, it is just fleeting and ephemeral. You, you catch a glimpse of it here. You catch a, a glimpse of it over there. But by the time you wrap your hand around it, it's already gone. It just has a way of being so evasive. The lesson here is that happiness cannot be the object of our supreme desire or pursuit. Rather, we find happiness, we find satisfaction when we desire and pursue righteousness. Well, let me to illustrate this for you. Imagine a man who goes to see his doctor because he has developed this persistent rash across his face, which is both uh, painful and embarrassing for the man. And so the doctor looks at the rash and he says, I've got just the thing for you. Here's this medicinal lotion uh, that will relieve you of the discomfort and the rash should be gone within a few days. Is that the way that a good doctor would handle a patient? The answer is absolutely not. That's a bad doctor. That's, that's malpractice. Because 
He needs to know what is actually causing the rash. All he's doing is giving the patient what he wants, which is relief from the pain or from the discomfort and embarrassment, but he's not giving the patient what he actually needs. Is it skin cancer? Is it a, you know, some kind of fungal infection? The doctor needs to run some tests to find out because something is causing the rash, and that's what needs to be addressed. I'm speaking from experience, by the way. And so it is with the person who wants to be happy and thus pursues all the the beautiful, shiny things of this world, all the things that this world has to offer, only to find out that it's like an oasis that just gets further and further away from him the closer he feels like he's getting to it. Let me give you another example. Let's say that a man is struggling and struggling with lust. And so eventually he goes to see a therapist who tells him that, you know, he just needs to learn to accept himself. He needs to give in to the lusts of the flesh and that it's just part of his instinct as an animal and that his unhappiness is actually caused by suppressing these carnal desires. Obviously, that is terrible advice. So let's say that he understands that that's terrible advice. So he goes to his pastor instead after this, and his pastor gives him every warning that Scripture lays out against the practice, the habitual practice of sin. And yet, the man's struggle only increases. What is the problem? The problem there is that the man is hungering and thirsting for satisfaction, for happiness, for pleasure, instead of hungering and thirsting for righteousness. And this is what humanity is doing. They're hungering and thirsting for all the wrong things. The world is essentially saying, I've got this this painful void within me that causes me great unhappiness, so I need to find something within myself to make myself happy. And so they turn to things like money, or they turn to the lusts of the flesh, or some other form of idolatry. What can fill that emptiness? What can fill that void? Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. I can't get no satisfaction, cries the world. And the reason is so simple. It's because satisfaction, happiness, is a byproduct of something else, of righteousness. If you hunger and thirst for happiness instead of righteousness, you're not going to find either one. If you hunger and thirst for righteousness instead of happiness, you're going to find both. Let me say that again. That's really important. If you hunger and thirst for happiness instead of righteousness, you're going to find neither one. But if you hunger and thirst for righteousness instead of happiness, you'll find both. But let's make sure that we understand what this righteousness even is that we're talking about here. Again, it's important for us to understand that it's something that cannot be found found when we we look inside of ourselves uh, by nature. We've already seen that we have none to speak of within ourselves. If we have any righteousness, righteousness, it must be what Martin Luther referred to as an alien righteousness. A righteousness that comes from a source outside of ourselves. So let's start with this. The righteousness that we need is beyond uh, simply acting right. Right? It's not just behavior modification. We're not talking about that. Listen, you can, you can modify the behavior of a dog, of a monkey, of, of any animal. We're not animals. We're not animals. We are human beings. There's a very uh, clear distinction made between animals and humanity in Genesis chapters uh, 1 and 2. No, we are not animals, contrary to what your science teacher might tell you. 
Uh, and, you know, we do believe that behavior, that good behavior is important. I'm not saying that that's a, a bad thing to have good behavior, but that's not the kind of righteousness that we're talking about here. It's not the kind of righteousness that Jesus was talking about. No, Jesus knew that our best deeds, our best actions are like filthy rags in God's holy courts, completely unacceptable to God. This, of course, is why Paul would write in his letter to the Romans, there is none righteous, not even one. Romans 3.10 Now, if you look up the word righteous or righteousness in the dictionary, you'll see that it often refers to justification. If you don't know what justification is, justification is the act whereby God forgives and declares a person not guilty. And I think that it does include that. I think this term righteousness includes that, but I think it also applies to sanctification as well. Sanctification being the lifelong process that follows justification in which we are grown in the likeness of Christ. I think it includes both of those things. See, when a a person looks at themselves, uh, as the preceding Beatitudes have forced us to do, we not only find that there is no righteousness, but we also find that we are slaves to sin. And what should be our response? What should a person's response be, the right response, when they realize that they are a slave to sin? What should they do then? Our desires should be not only to be forgiven for serving uh, you know, our slave master faithfully, but our desire should also be for a better master, a righteous Savior and Lord. It's our lack of righteousness that causes us to look within and then to look at God, who is righteous in all of His ways. And when we look at Him, we have to see what has come between us and Him. What has interfered with us loving and serving and honoring and glorifying God the way that we always should have? What's prevented us from doing it? Sin has. Sin has. And so when we talk about a desire for righteousness, what we mean is that there's a desire for this thing that has caused a separation between God and us to be removed. As Lloyd-Jones said, he said, quote, The man who hungers and thirsts after righteousness is the man who sees that sin and rebellion have separated him from the face of God and longs to get back into that old relationship, the original relationship of righteousness in the presence of God. End quote. See, our first parents, Adam and Eve, were made without sin. They were made to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever in righteous and peaceful fellowship, just like us. That's the fellowship, that's the the relationship that humanity was intended to have, and it's the relationship that humanity longs for. But what happened to that relationship? What got in the way? Sin did. So how can this relationship that's been broken by sin, how can it be restored? How can we recover the fellowship with God that we lost? The answer is, we can't. But God can. God can. God can free us not only from the penalty of sin, that's justification, but God can also free us, and He does free us, from bondage to sin. That's sanctification. It's far too common and far too easy for us to think to ourselves of how we want to be forgiven of sin and for it to just stop there. Now, that's a good desire. It's good for us to desire to be forgiven of sin. But if it stops there, fellowship with God still can't be recovered because we're still slaves to sin. But remember, Jesus has talked about the blessing of of mourning over our sin and of repenting of our sin, turning away from our sin. If you've done that, the reason that you've done that is because you've longed to be set free from the power of sin. That's why you turn away from sin. Because you don't want to have anything to do with it anymore. You don't want to serve sin any longer. And the person who longs to be set free from the power of sin will also first be set free from the penalty of sin. It's a package deal. You can't have one without the other. 
But this is what it means to hunger and to thirst for righteousness. It's a desire. It's a, it's a longing to be set free from sin's tyranny. This is the righteousness that Jesus is, speak, is speaking of here in this context. It's judicial, first of all, in the sense that God legally declares a person to be forgiven, to be not guilty in his courts of law. But it's also going to be practical in that it changes our lives, it changes our attitudes, it changes our actions. But it doesn't change them superficially. It's not like behavior modification. It's not like what the the modern world of psychology has to offer. It changes people from the inside out. It involves receiving a new heart, which creates within us new ambitions, new aspirations, new desires, new objects of our love. It causes us to find pleasure in the things that once gave us misery, and it causes us misery in things that once gave us a sense of fleeting pleasure. It teaches us, it causes us to hate the things that we used to love and to love the things that we used to hate. Can you honestly tell me that you have a desire for that? For this righteousness that Jesus is speaking of? Can you unequivocally and without any apprehension, any sense of apprehension or hesitation, say that you can see that you have a need for righteousness, a need to be forgiven of sin, a need to be freed from sin's power in your life, and that you have found that it is not within yourself. Jesus makes a promise here that if this is your desire, you will be satisfied. You will be content. Now how can he make a promise like that? How can anyone make a promise like that? It's because Jesus himself, and only Jesus, lived a perfectly righteous life. Every nanosecond of his life, he stayed within the will of the Father and thereby lived a perfectly unblemished righteous life. The question that you must ask is how can this righteousness be made mine? How can I have some of that righteousness for myself? The answer is it's a gift that's received from God through faith. In His great love, in His great wisdom, the Lord Jesus humbled Himself and took on flesh, living this perfect life that Adam and all of His offspring, that's, that's you and me by the way, that we've all failed to live. But when we put our faith for salvation in Jesus, not in our good works, not in our best deeds, but in Jesus alone, God credits Jesus' righteousness to you so that you judicially stand in Jesus' robes of righteousness rather than standing before Him in your filthy rags of unrighteousness or at least your failed attempts at righteousness. You must see that if you hunger and if you thirst for righteousness and Christ alone is righteousness, then the desire for righteousness is actually a desire to become more and more like Jesus. And it's to enter into fellowship with the triune God that was once only truly experienced between the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And now, if you have believed in Jesus and His righteousness has been credited to you, God the Father loves you with the same love that He has for the Son. Try to wrap your mind around that. Do you want that? Do you, want, do you desire that? Do you pursue that? Do you hunger and thirst for that kind of fellowship with God? We need to understand that there is no righteousness within us. And then we need to understand that any righteousness that is to be found is found in God alone. It's found in God alone. There is no room for independence or autonomy or self-reliance here. When the world seeks for a sense of righteousness, it focuses on the, the self, the, the individual, and his behavior. 
And what does that do? Once a man learns to, to, to act right, he goes from acting like an absolute uh, gorilla to acting like a gentleman. What happens to his ego when that happens? It leads to pride. And yet, Jesus has said, you can't come into the kingdom pridefully. And all the previous Beatitudes have shown us how being poor in spirit, being humble, being contrite, that's what's called for in a person who is going to come into the kingdom. Very briefly, in closing, let's consider the ramifications and implications of the words hunger and thirst. I mean, after all, Jesus could have said, blessed are those who desire righteousness, or blessed are those who pursue or, or long for righteousness, for they will be satisfied. He could have used those words, right? But he didn't. So why did he use the words hunger and thirst? Is there a specific reason? Yes. Because hunger and thirst imply that you don't have something. You don't have what you need. Have you ever been hungry? And I don't just mean, you know, you haven't eaten in a couple hours and so you've you got a little rumbly in your tumbly. I, I, I mean, you're really, really hungry. I mean, maybe days you haven't eaten. I'll say this. The, the time that I can remember that I had was the most hungry. And I know my wife already knows exactly when this was. It was when I, uh, I ran my first half marathon in 2010. And afterwards, I had a hunger that was unlike anything I had ever, ever felt before. I was exhausted. Uh, I felt like I was unable to move. But what motivated me to move and get to the car was the fact that I was so hungry. Uh, I had an urgency about getting something to eat. And so my wife and I stopped at a nearby restaurant where I ordered two meals. Uh, she laughs because she remembers it uh, vividly. It was quite an experience. But I felt like I could just eat a mountain of food. There was an urgency to what I was feeling. I could not wait uh, until we got home in you know, roughly an hour to try to fix myself some food at home. No, I felt like I was going to die if I even had to wait 15 or 20 minutes. It was an urgent hunger that could not wait. And it was an urgent hunger that I couldn't satisfy myself. I had to get something outside of myself, in myself. I had to get some food. When Jesus talks about hungering for righteousness, He means that you have a sense of urgency about it. Like you need it right now, and you're not going to wait one second longer than you have to. It can't be postponed. It can't be put off for another day. You need it right now. That's the sense that you get from hunger and thirst, it means that you have this nagging awareness that can't be relieved until it is filled. It's not something that you know comes on for a little while and then it eventually passes. No, when you are hungry, I mean really hungry, there is only one way to get relief, and that's by eating. Jesus said of Himself in John chapter 6, verse 50, This is the bread which comes down out of heaven, so that one may eat of it and not die. And likewise, thirst. If you've ever been truly, truly thirsty in a physical sense, all you can think about is how desperately you need to get water into your mouth. It, with thirst, it really doesn't take that long before a person becomes absolutely desperate for relief to the point where you'll do just about anything to have your thirst quenched. There's a sense of agonizing desperation that comes along with thirst. Jesus said to the Samaritan woman at the well, Whoever drinks of the water that I will give him shall never thirst, but the water that I will give him will become in him a well of water springing up to eternal life. In John chapter 4, verse 14, the psalmist said it so well, As the deer pants for the water brooks, so my soul pants for you, O God. Psalm 42, verse 1. And this concept is really illustrated so well by the parable of the prodigal son. If you know the story, you know that he took his inheritance and he went and he lived this exorbitant, lavish lifestyle where he lost all of his money and he finds himself in the end being poor and helpless, trying to satisfy his hunger with food that was meant only for pigs. But in Luke chapter 15, verse 17, we read this. We read, But when he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired men have more than enough bread, but I am dying here with hunger? 
And so he didn't have time to waste. He realizes there's an urgency here. I am dying and I will die if I don't get something real in my stomach. And so what does he do? He immediately gets up and he heads back home to his father. Why? Because nobody else would give him food that would satisfy him. He desperately, desperately felt hungry. He felt an urgency about it. And he was willing to humble himself before his father to have this need satisfied. And this is what we're talking about here. Having such a hunger for righteousness that you're willing to humble yourself and come by faith to the Lord Jesus, the fount of every blessing, the perfectly righteous one, begging for mere breadcrumbs of righteousness from His table and finding that He has a feast prepared for you instead. If this is you, here's Jesus' promise. You will be satisfied. And you are blessed. He will give you exactly what it is that you need, what it is that you desire so urgently. And this is the good news. The thing that you need and crave and supremely desire will be given to you free of charge. He's already paid for it in full. It's a free gift. Salvation is a free gift to be received by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Friends, on your own, you will never, ever, ever be righteous enough to meet God's standards. You will fall short in every single possible way. There is no righteousness to be found within you. But there is an abundance of righteousness in Christ Jesus for all who believe. Please, please make sure that you are not hungering and not thirsting for happiness or pleasure or contentment supremely. Because if happiness is your supreme desire, you will come up empty. Hunger and thirst instead for righteousness. And you will be blessed, happy, satisfied, content. Yearn to be like Christ. And know that while you can't make yourself grow in Christ's likeness, God can. He can make you grow in Christ's likeness. And indeed, He has promised that He will and that if you have believed in Jesus, He actually is using every circumstance of your life to make you more like Jesus. The irony is that the more you grow in Christ's likeness, the more you'll desire to grow in Christ's likeness. That is the great gift of grace that the Christian journey is all about. We never lose our appetite for righteousness, and yet we are perfectly and supremely satisfied by it in Christ Jesus. Do you desire to be satisfied? Do you desire to be happy? Remember, we cannot aspire to Him in earnest until we have begun to be displeased with ourselves. Have you seen that you have no righteousness of your own to stand on? Have you looked within and, and found nothing there? And yet, as Jesus will say later in the Sermon on the Mount, chapter 5, verse 20, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and scribes, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Whose righteousness could possibly surpass theirs? Jesus's. Jesus's. Friends, God requires righteousness and yet you will not find it within yourself. You will not find it within the things of this world. You must come by faith to the Lord Jesus, who is the fount of every blessing, including the blessing of righteousness that God requires of you. He will fill you. He will satisfy you. This is His promise to you. L listen to the prophecy from Isaiah chapter 55, verses 1-3. to Everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And you who have no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without cost. Why do you spend money for what is not bread and your wages for what does not satisfy? 
Listen carefully to me and eat what is good and delight yourself in abundance. Incline your ear and come to me. Listen that you may live. That's His promise to you. And that promise is fulfilled in Christ. To quote Jean Luther one last time, he said, when I look at myself, I don't see how I can be saved. But when I look at Jesus, I don't see how I can be lost. Don't set your gaze upon yourself. Don't, don't focus inwardly. Take a glance, yes, but only long enough to recognize that you have no righteousness, that you need righteousness, and then set your gaze upon Christ, who is our righteousness before God. Receive that righteousness by believing in Him. And in Him you'll find, as Paul said in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 20, that as many are the promises of God in Him, in Christ, They are yes. Therefore, also through Him is our amen to the glory of God through us. He is our righteousness. God requires righteousness and it's only found by believing in Jesus. And if you do that, you'll be blessed and you'll be satisfied. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank You for the way that Your Word reveals ourselves, for the way that it functions as a mirror by which we can clearly and truly see ourselves. But we thank You for the righteousness that You have provided in Christ. We can only confess before You that we have no righteousness within to speak of. What we have is unrighteousness. What we have is an aversion to righteousness by nature. But by Your grace, O God, You've turned our eyes unto Christ, who's the fount of righteousness. And You have taken our sin away from us, and You clothed Christ with it. And You took His perfect robes of righteousness, and You clothed us with those robes. Oh Lord, we cannot fathom such grace, such mercy, such love. But we thank You that by Your grace You have done these things. Oh Lord, we pray that You would help us to not only be judicially righteous before You. We thank You that we are, but we pray also for a practical righteousness. We pray that we could by the power of Your Spirit and by Your wisdom and causing all things to work together according to Your plans and purposes, that we would grow in Christ's likeness. And that in Him, we would find supreme satisfaction, not only here and now in our lives where we are, but in eternity. Oh Lord, we long for that, we long for that day and hunger for that day when we will have all practical sin, the flesh stripped away from us, and we will never have an inclination to sin again. Until then, we pray for your grace to cover us, to sustain us, and to grow us more in Christ's likeness. In his name we pray. Amen.